Welcome to the Tech in Shanghai podcast, the pearl of the Orient. Shanghai is the city of the future. All systems go full steam ahead. It never stops. Technology, innovation, ambition. It's everywhere. Join us as we explore this new world and talk to the people making it happen. The Tech in Shanghai podcast. The future is now. So everybody, welcome back to the Tech in Shanghai podcast. This is the show dedicated to the people of the Shanghai startup scene.、Uh, today we have a very special guest,、uh, Steve Mushiro of China NetCloud.、Um, Steve has been on the scene in Shanghai for quite some time、um, and involved in a lot of very interesting businesses, both here and in the United States, and indeed around the world,、um, and a lot of interesting projects. So, Steve, let's just get it kicked off. First of all, welcome to the show. Um, maybe you can describe for our listeners a little bit about、uh, China NetCloud, what you guys do, and then we can get rolling from there. Sure. Well, thank you very much for having me.、I'm、very excited to be here. So, yes, I'm、uh, one of the co-founders and CEO of China NetCloud, and our job is really to help Chinese companies operate their internet infrastructure. So we're internet guys,、mm-hmm. yeah, but we're internet backend guys. So we really focus on the servers, data centers, infrastructure, all the sort of boring parts that really keep. You know, websites, games, apps, mobile, e-commerce, and all those things up and running. So our customers build all the exciting, sexy front-end stuff. We build all the boring,、uh, but yet essential back-end systems, and then we run them twenty-four-seven. So our job is really as an operations company.、Mm-hmm. We're running the back-end infrastructure for things. Right now, I, I mentioned to a few friends I was going to be having you on the show today, and the consensus question from everybody was, "What is the cloud?" You know, because we know it's a, a catchy tech term. We know, you know, some, there's some great marketing and branding. It's a great metaphor, and I think everyone has a basic understanding of what it is. But let's hear it from the horse's mouth. What, what exactly is the cloud? Well, there really are two clouds, as I think of it these days. It, you're right; it has con, it has come from everywhere. Everybody has cloud everything. I have cloud coffee. I have cloud cars. I have <laughs> everything is a cloud, right? In fact, we do have a cloud car company as a customer, but.、Uh, So basically, there's two parts. One is consumer cloud. This is what most users think. This is like Dropbox, Evernote, and sort of iCloud from Apple, things like this,、mm-hmm. where I, as a consumer, can have an iPad or a phone, and I store stuff on the cloud. You know, I don't have a hard disk anymore, and that's really nice because obviously you can share it very easily, and it's just very useful. For us, though, the cloud is more infrastructure where you're buying servers and other things that run your website. Uh, the same thing in the cloud. I don't have to buy hardware anymore. You know, traditionally, you had to buy servers. So you went to Dell or IBM or HP, and you said, "Here's a hundred thousand dollars. Give me ten servers." And you go and put them in a rack, and you kind of power them up and, and run them.、Um, but now you don't have to do that. You can just go to Amazon or in China, Alibaba or other people, and say, "Give me servers for the next two hours, and here is a hundred dollars, and just use them." Mm-hmm. And yet they function exactly the same way, right? So that you really get rental use almost versus buying somewhat, right? So the 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 basic hardware infrastructure is still in place. There's no there's no magical cloud up Correct. in the ether.、Correct. It's just that you can gain access to it without having to make that investment.、Right? Correct. Yeah, somewhat like a you know condo timeshare almost,、right. where you can go buy a house or I can just go rent a hotel and, it, it, and similar things. And, and with some of the issues too, because I rent a hotel, it's smaller. Right, and the certain issues and so on, different than owning a house in a city. Cloud is somewhat similar to that. And is one of the main benefits of the cloud its flexibility? In that, you know, if I was a startup company and I had to buy a bunch of servers, then I have a set capacity for what I can do. Versus, 
if I engage in a cloud service like yours, then whatever I need, I can get just that amount, and that's what I can pay for. Is that generally the idea? Absolutely. I mean, for a lot of people, there are different benefits to different people, but mm-hmm. certainly the flexibility is an important one, both up and down. Mm-hmm. So I can start, you know, reality is, as a startup, people often start, they launch a product, it's not that successful initially, they have to adjust it, change it, try again, right. it may take a year. Well, if I've spent $100,000 on hardware, you know, that's sort of sitting there wasted for all that time period where if on the cloud, I can launch it, I can shrink it, I can grow it, I can change it, I can decide to try something new. Um, And also it makes it very innovative because an engineer who wants to try something can just go get a server for a day or a week, try something really cool. In a, even at you know a startup, that's really hard to do because no one has the money. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that creates innovation much, much faster. Right. In terms of the the history of the cloud, now that we have a, a basic working understanding, when, when did both the term, but more importantly, the service become available to the market? That's a good question. I'm not sure anyone's traced back sort of the first words of the cloud. Mm-hmm. Uh, to some extent, consumer cloud is an outgrowth of sort of software as a service and some of these uh, older terms that were used even, even 10 or 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. But I think current cloud comes from a variety of things. Uh, Salesforce.com mm-hmm. sort of talked about cloud apps more than 10 years ago. Uh, but I think most people think about the cloud in our world as Amazon. Mm-hmm. So about 10 years ago, uh, Amazon and sort of related companies started offering these types of software and, and computers as a service. Um, so that's when it really started, I think. Mm-hmm. And people started thinking, well, if I don't have the hardware, it's not very reliable, not very thing, not very useful, and so on. So why buy that? It took a long time. Right. Really the last five years, maybe six, seven years, has it really taken off? In the last three or four years, you know, now Amazon and people are growing, you know, 30, 40% a year. Right. Uh, people guesstimate Amazon's business is probably 5 billion U.S. Um, for their web, for, for their, their cloud service. For the cloud service, and they only have about a third of the market. So it's a 10 wow. or $20 billion market up from essentially zero yeah. uh, 10 years ago. So it's, uh, and now it's just coming to China, really. So. And in your opinion, what impact does this have on the speed at which companies can establish themselves and grow? And like, what kind of overarching impact does this have on startup and tech companies in general, bringing down that barrier of, of setting up initially, as, as it seems? Yeah, I think it does exactly that. It, it lowers the cost. As I mentioned, it really increases the flexibility mm-hmm. because, like I said, you now can innovate very easily. You can try something new. You can duplicate. You can give every developer their own server, which mm-hmm. was really hard to do before. You can try new things. You can really jump around uh, and do stuff at very low cost. Right. You know, um, that's a big benefit. And also, some of the clouds that have more advanced services, it's not just the computers. Now, uh, Microsoft, Amazon, IBM, companies in China offer additional services like databases, so you don't have to manage it yourself. Mm-hmm. Or they have uh, queue services or payment services or all these other things that were hard for you to develop yourself before are now just there as a service. Right. You want to send emails? Pay a dollar. Here it is. Right. Uh, and that also, again, speeds things to market. Yeah. And so I think it's been part of the sort of Silicon Valley. The cost of developing new businesses has dropped a lot for mm-hmm. many reasons. This is an important part of that. Right. And you, you come at it from a highly technical background, am I right? That's Correct. That's your, yes. your education, <laughs> and you've been in this industry for a long time. Yes, longer than I care to admit. <laughs> what are the, if any, the security differences and or risks between cloud computing uh, and cloud hosting and serving versus the traditional, like, you have your own hardware servers. And Is there any? Well, there's concerns, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. I think the reality is that in the end, for most companies, for most issues, there's no difference. Right. 
uh, in, in practice. There certainly is the concern, of course, that if I'm putting all my data up in your cloud, well, you can steal it. Mm-hmm. And or other people can steal it. They can cross the so-called the barrier and get to your system. This has never actually happened uh, anywhere in the world that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. So it's a theoretical risk, and it's one you should probably think about a little bit, uh, but not not something significant that I would you know that that, that is more important than the benefits you're getting. So right. it's not something we worry about day to day. Okay. Um, we have a couple cases where that's an issue, but that's an issue anyway. People forget that in a regular data center, people can walk in and steal your servers. Sure. And so if you're storing credit card information or other highly sensitive things, you need to deal with that anyway. Right. The reality is it's a lot easier to walk into a random small data center and steal a server than it is to steal data off of a cloud. Right. And uh, you, I mean, with, with, I was reading uh, prior to this interview the amount of data that's actually in the cloud. I mean, I know most of that information is private, right? And we can actually hopefully get some insight into that later. But I was reading that it, Estimates of, of you know just the top three or four cloud service providers, somewhere in the vicinity of over one exabyte. Is that the right term? Yeah, to probably. Use? Yeah. yeah, yeah, a lot. Which is a, a shitload of data. Yes. How closely related are this? You know, is cloud uh, computing and cloud services, and the work that you do to you know another you know very big buzzword in, in tech and, and startup scene today in big data. You know, because obviously the cloud ag- is ostensibly holding a lot of this data does your company and or do other companies do anything with that data or is that a totally different business it's related because yeah big data is certainly a sexy term of the day big data really is about you know large data as you can imagine Mm -hmm. Um, and typically about behavior streams and or data on people. For example, I was talking For consumer purposes primarily? Usually consumer purposes. Yeah. Although, I mean, in theory, oil drilling is big data because you have a lot of data sure. about seismic stuff. Yeah. And so that it's been around for a long time. But historically, some of the sexiness of big data is that it's, for the first time, really accessible. Mm-hmm. In other words, again, the oil companies and IBM and the military have always had big data systems, but they're extremely expensive. You need supercomputers to deal with it. Right. Uh, there's a, I think it's an HP company. Uh, Teradata, they used to sell you, you know, $10 million boxes to deal with big data, so Walmart uses that to track their products. Today, you and I can get that on Amazon for $50. Right. You know, and so suddenly you have a lot of data, you can process it. So if you're an advertising company or a mobile app company, you used to be able to just say, well, people use my apps. I don't really know what they do. You know, when I was at Tudo, if we wanted to track all the actions of all of our users, it was something like 10 billion events per day. And so if you want to track, you know, stop, start, pause, it's a video company, right? Yeah. You want to do pause, start, stop, what do they look at? We can get all that data, mm-hmm. but we're doing 100 million videos a day. If you collect 10 things per video, that's a billion things. Yeah. Now, look at that over a month and tell me what the most common thing is. This is a big job. Sure. So, uh, but now you can do that. Yeah. <clears throat> and so people do that. So inside their games, inside their apps, they start to look at what does every user do all the time. And right. before, you really had to sample that. You had to figure it out. You had to sort of look very carefully at a little bit of the data. Suddenly, you can look at all the data and draw interesting conclusions, and you can do it fairly easily. It's not trivial. Right. And that's what a lot of these big data companies are doing. They're making that easier for you. Say, okay, you've got 50 billion events. Now, here are ways to work on it and slice and dice it without spending $10 million. Now, and that's the sexiness of it. And then how do you look at it? How do you, use, how do you draw insights yeah. as consumer? You know, how do you profile people? How do you figure out who's who? How do you figure out who's buying what, things like this. That's, I mean, it's incredibly interesting to consider all the different ways that that could transform pretty much every industry and, and every one. Is that, is the, 
the marriage between cloud computing and data and big data and the interpretation and usage of that data just now, like in its infancy, could we say? Like, it's, because I, I think so, because uh, big data is still hard. Right. You know, we're trying to do things that, like I said, that cost $10 million 10 years ago and required an army of experts. Now it's within your reach. Right. Uh, the most common system you'll hear about that does this is something called Hadoop, um, which is named after an elephant. Mm-hmm. But uh, Hadoop is sort of the big, sexy system that everyone's using. It's open source, but it's not something you pick up and use in an afternoon. Right. You know, uh, it's not really used much at all in China. It's just starting to be. It takes quite a bit of experts and a lot of books to figure out what you want to do with it. But right. that's still a huge step forward. Yeah. So, yes, it's very much in its infancy. Some of the related companies are starting to get funding. So, you know, in five years, you'll be able to do it yourself. Right. You know, but... Uh, now, it, I'm, I'm going to uh, come out of left field with this one, but is big data and the interpretation of it and the way that we go about using it, could that be like the doorway into, you know, getting closer to something like artificial intelligence? Because basically, you're taking much more data than anyone, even the human brain, could ever use and actually make sense of, and then you're trying to draw conclusions of it. Now, I know it's a bit out there, but is it, is it, does it seem like it could be the entryway into something like that? Perhaps way down the road. Yeah. I think, you know, the big data is really about the data, mm-hmm. of course, and drawing conclusions from it. That is usually not the artificial intelligence problem mm-hmm. that people are thinking about, depending on how you define artificial intelligence. That's much more about algorithms, for example, playing chess. Right. Playing chess is not about memorizing all the possible moves. That's easy. There's only so many moves. Right. It's thinking about how many can I do and what's my opponent going to do. It's the thinking part of sure, it. Sure, sure. Uh, it's, ta- it's the drawing from that data to come to a, a conclusion, an action, a, something. Right, right? And, just the, and just the algorithms. And usually not that much data is required, although sometimes. Right. Um, but as soon as you get to the threshold where the computer already knows all the words, if you're trying to speak to it, or knows all the chess moves and knows right. all the things, then it's about speed and power and, and sort of algorithms. Right. How does a brain think? And there's more progress in that. The data part of it is probably not that important. Right. Um, I'm just geeking out because I'm, I'm trying to look, I'm looking at if you have that amount of data and piece by piece, time by time, if you have that many algorithms in place so that the data can be interpreted, at what point will you have the marriage of the two to such a degree that, I mean, I guess... Technically, it still wouldn't be artificial. It wouldn't be "quote unquote" intelligence, but it would have such a decision-making capacity that it could it could seem so. You uh, know what I mean? Potentially, I don't. I don't think the data influences it that much. Right. In other words, I think already the systems that are trying to do that have enough data. Mm-hmm. I mean, giving them ten times more data doesn't really help them. Okay. Um, same as trying to play Jeopardy. You know, that famous IBM had a yeah, yeah. You're playing Watson, Jeopardy, right? Watson, yeah. yeah. Uh, he didn't need to know more facts. He already knew them all. Mm-hmm. Right? He knows all the Wikipedia, everything. He knows some battle in 1620 with some general did something, knows that. Right. The question is, can you put it all together fast enough, mm-hmm. and, and can you think about it? So the data part of it is interesting, not nearly as much, though, as still trying to make forward right. the intelligence part. Okay. So that's still a ways off. Sure. And, and, and becomes more important in things like robots. So where you really see interesting confluence is where we start having these like Japanese personal robots that help you mm-hmm. and assist you and figure out what you want. And that's where there's you know, small applications, but those are the ones that are people trying to solve. Right. And, and military Next things. steps, yeah. Next steps and, and useful. Sure, today. And sure. data really isn't a big part of that. And sp- speaking kind of along the same lines, how, you know, to me, big data and the Internet of Things seems very closely related because, you know, one couldn't really, or the Internet of Things doesn't, doesn't really have an existence, at least 
it doesn't have a, as big a usefulness without a, something like the cloud. So my, my question, my line of thinking here is how, in what ways do you see, given your closeness to the industry and the work and the technology, cloud computing and the Internet of Things changing the way we live over the next five to, to ten years? I think it's one of those areas you can't see very far. Right. You know, you never know what's you don't know what's going to yeah. pop up. For example, and take, take traction. Get I traction. understand that Amazon is now offering a uh, so different different types of Internet of Things. Mm -hmm. I, my refrigerator should be on the internet. Well, what does that mean? My coffee maker, my you know, different things, uh, my lawn sprinklers, I and mean, those are all useful because I can control them. Kind right. of obvious. Turn the lights on in my house, stuff mm -hmm. like that. That's okay. But example, Amazon is releasing uh, a product that can you can reorder food out of your refrigerator. So and if you run low on milk, the refrigerator knows it orders milk. Mm -hmm. And by the time you get home that day, milk shows up. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, and or because you always open the refrigerator and go, oh, I wish I have to put on my grocery list to buy this thing. Well, today you have apps to do that. You have a bunch of different ways. But they're producing, I understand, a tablet that sits right on the, phone, right on the uh, refrigerator, magnetic. You just close the door and touch, 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 order right there. Right. Credit cards are already remembered. Everything's in the cloud. And by the end of the week, you just say, yes, I'm, here. I'm home Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. A guy shows up, gives you everything. Right. That's a big convenience, especially for a mom who has to take her kids to the supermarket and kids are screaming. And, you know, there's a lot of, I'm not sure that's life-changing, but it, it is to them. Yeah. And uh, same thing with, you know, reordering, you know, food or fuel or water or just all these sort of nuts and bolts things. Yeah. Those are sort of practical Beyond that, I think it's hard to see. Sure. I'm sure a lot of companies are thinking about it. There's all these wearables. Yeah. You know, the, Seemingly, I mean, too, too many or you know, too, too many, many to count, <clears throat> at least. Right. And there's also the Google Glass. Right. Is that an Internet of Things? That's kind of a thing. Sure. It's kind of a very advanced thing. Yeah. Uh, and it's now actually being used to control other things. And so when you start tying that together, when I can walk through my house with some sort of implanted or glass type thing, right. and other things in the house are now connected to that, is that useful? Can I turn lights on? What can I do with that? How do I, can I see where my kids are upstairs playing? I right. just go, oh, kids, and I can see what they're doing outside. Or, I don't know. And, I, and then how does that impact the bigger world? Sure. I mean, sure. it's certainly... It's, it's very cool. Yeah. And it, it certainly it seems right now that things are, I mean, perhaps all the times it, it goes this way, notwithstanding a few big game changers like the iPhone and stuff, but things are coming together in piecemeal so that in five years, maybe you will walk into your house know where your kids are and your your fridge will have everything ready and the oven will be on and things will be cooking and but maybe all managed by all different things or maybe all managed under one operating system or device or something like that but it is i mean there seems to be a real race on right now for wearables and all that sort of technology the internet of things and it's interesting to speculate which one is going to take hold in the market because it may not be the iWatch you know maybe people don't want to have that experience on their wrist and interact with it that way but uh but no, I just I you know it seems like all that stuff is brought together by cloud computing and and the Internet of Things. So, if you could give us a bit of background on on China NetCloud, you and, and yourself, you uh, were working in in Silicon Valley in the in the U.S. for a while. Is that right? Uh, correct, correct. Yeah. I uh, spent a number of years in Silicon Valley working on all kinds of different things. Uh -huh. <clears throat> I was there. I had a, was fortunate enough to arrive just in the middle of the bubble or just at the end of the bubble. Okay. So by the time I really got myself situated and, and house and all that, the whole economy crashed. <laughs> and at one point, I think the U-Haul U-Haul has these statistics on how many people are coming to a city versus leaving, uh -huh. which is usually somewhat balanced. And it went from you know twice as many arriving to something like four or five times as many people leaving. Right. Because everybody was just graduating. Because you could graduate in the '90s and come to San Francisco and make you know fifty or eighty thousand dollars a year with zero experience. Right. Uh, computer scientists can now do that yeah. for a hundred thousand dollars. But um, 
Yeah, so it sort of crashed. So there's a lot of different things going on of, of startups, and I did some biotech uh, right. sort of things for a while, and and then big company things, and sort of a lot of different stuff. But yeah, yeah, mostly in Silicon Valley. What was the scene like then? I mean, pre, but especially post crash, you know, because I would imagine that was the area that felt it hardest. The whole world felt it, but certainly Silicon Valley was the center of the tech bubble and the tech startup scene. So what was it like being there when it all fell apart? Yeah, it was quite interesting. It was it was really. Uh, I mean, before, I was looking, I, I don't have my calendar anymore, but I used to show people my calendar in my phone of, uh, like, 99, and it literally was three or four parties a night, like, open sushi parties. You could go to the Museum of Modern Art in San Francisco and have all the drinks, all the sushi, and there'd be a 1,000 people there. And right. this would be a, a random launch party of some company you'd never heard of. Mm-hmm. And you could do that every day. You know, it was just crazy. And uh, apartments were renting for, you know, you had to rent an apartment. You had to show up at 6 in the morning with your resume, with cash, not a check, but cash, and get in line to rent an apartment. And I've heard actually it's recently done this like this again. But, right. but it was really, really crazy. And then after that, it was not like that. The traffic sort of disappeared. You could drive everywhere. No more sushi. And, and there was no more free sushi. I had to buy my own sushi. Um, and so it was really a challenge. And, and a friend of mine runs, the, runs a site called Work It, which is all of the events and seminars and meetings and so on in, in the Bay Area in San Francisco. And it's interesting because, you know, during the dot-com days, it's all about, you know, building your startup, taking over the world. And then suddenly it changes into surviving the downturn, right. changing industries, how to, you know, litigate your way out of this, raising money when the evaluation is falling. Right. And you can sort of see the pulse of the, of the valley. Go sort down of up, up, well, up and down based on this. And, of course, it turns back up again and right. then down and so well, Interesting. Was the writing on the wall when you first arrived? I mean, because everyone likes no, to no. to say in hindsight, like, "Oh, it was so obvious as a bubble," and you know, companies were getting billion dollar valuations with absolutely zero revenue. You, it, it wasn't on the well, wall. I, there was too much excitement, too much ambition. Too oh, much I, I think that was so. That was obvious. Yeah, and that was all maybe unsustainable is too strong a word, but that was all like this is not really a good idea. Right. But at the same time, there's so much money, and you've got companies going out and going public. Right. For billions of dollars, how can and you so, resist? So how do you, yeah, yeah, and, and it is, they did these things, right? So how do you stay on that on that gravy train? Um, so it's kind of kind of interesting. And then we're not we're sort of in this again. And, right. Uh, well, I was going to ask you. So now we're coming into a period where you know tech and startups, and for a variety of, of converging reasons, but it's be, the industry itself has gotten a lot of hype again, and there's a lot of hype behind it. It's growing rapidly. There's so many interesting things going on. It seems like there's, you know, some of the lessons from that the, the dot-com bubble have carried over, and, you know, valuations aren't as crazy, and the hysteria is not as high. But, do, you know, what are the comparisons between then and now for you? Yeah, I think, I think that's correct. I think, however, it's certainly bubble feeling. Mm-hmm. The people that went through the last bubble, and, of course, Silicon Valley is all about bubbles since the 50s. Right. But... Uh, there seem to be more fundamentals. So the cost of doing things has, has dropped a lot. So in the 90s, you had just tech companies just raising huge amounts of money and, and sort of blowing it all. And you have Webvan. People are trying to really change the world. Mm-hmm. You don't see that so much right now, other than things like Uber, who are trying to change the taxi industry, uh, which, is, which is good. But you had Webvan and people, we're just going to change the complete grocery industry. We're going to change the complete medical delivery industry. We're going to change all the way doctors work. You know, all these guys, and let's blow $200 million trying to figure that out, and then it doesn't work yeah. for a variety of reasons. So there's a lot of that going on. You don't have that now. Um, I mean, Uber now is, is raised a lot of money in different people. That's after they've shown success. Mm-hmm. So nobody's saying, hey, I'm going to completely transform an industry and give me, you know, seven, eight, nine figures of money, and let me go try to figure it out. Right. It's much more... Low cost. Let me do an Instagram. Let me do a, even a Twitter. 
or these type things. Let me show traction, show that it works, show I can make money. Mm-hmm. You know, even like LinkedIn, uh, which is really just a LinkedIn site. We had a lot of those in the 90s. But LinkedIn is, has like $500 million in revenue. Mm-hmm. You know, so these are real businesses. And I think people figured out that lesson that right. we're not going to change the whole world. Uh, Elon Musk is trying uh, and doing a great job in his way, but he's, mm-hmm. he's also showing a lot of success. But no one's raising hundreds of millions of dollars on completely wacky ideas to right. sell pet food. They're doing something small. They're using cloud computing, which is low cost. Mm-hmm. They're rolling out quick things, doing it very quickly, you know, trying things, seeing what works, and then raising money on that. And right. then moving forward, then raising more money and then delivering real businesses to go out. You know, I think that's the difference. And so it's much more sustainable. The amount of money being deployed right. per kind of project and per outcome is much lower. So right. the risk is lower. Um, so, that, so that's on, a big difference. So on average, maybe going after more niche problems and also – Focusing more on fundamentals of business, perhaps at least I, I more think, so. I think than so, and, and not necessarily niche problems, but solve things in a new way. Right. Than, I'm going to just take over the grocery industry. Right. It's like, how do we do something like Instagram? Or other than I'm going to do something, picture something that interests me. Yeah. And of course, enough people do things that interest them, mm-hmm. and you can do it cheaply, and you execute it well. Now a bunch of those become popular. Right. And they can grow. Yeah. So I have an idea. I want to do X. I get a million dollars and I go do it, and then some, a lot of people like it, mm-hmm. and then we grow it from there and we sell it into WhatsApp or all these kind of things. Right. Um, so it's not so much a niche, it's more I think what people are interested in, they think they can do it, and they, for a small amount of money, can actually demonstrate it right. and then grow from there. Okay. Uh, I think that's a big difference from what happened before. Now, you, you again, I'm, I'm, I think everyone's so fascinated on where this is going because I think if you ask anybody, most people would say that. Or at least it seems like, given the technology that surrounds us increasingly, there's an acceleration of things in general, especially technology and the way that it we incorporate it into our lives, the way that we use it, the way we communicate with it and interact with it. It seems to be accelerating, and you you can read you know people like Ray Kurzweil and Peter Diamandis and these guys who talk about the future of abundance and things like that, and the exponential growth of technology and the exponential reduction in price for certain technologies. You've been around the block, you know, you've been on a variety of different scenes, and you see it from the technical point of view. Do you have a, a, a take on that? I think that's true. I mean, a lot of different levels. Technology is certainly lowering things. Just look at how fast the smartphones, you know, take right. over. I mean, certainly the iPhone took over uh, the U.S. very quickly. Mm-hmm. But even in a place like China, went from, you know, this is the world's largest mobile phone market. Mm-hmm. So there's six, seven hundred million, maybe a billion people using phones here. And... In two years, they went from something like 10% smartphones to 60. Yeah. So they bought like 250 or 500 million smartphones yeah. in 18 months. And that's a, you know, an interesting industry, interesting that none of those smartphone makers made any money. But, uh, but still very interesting how fast things can happen when you have the right sort of confluence of things, sure. especially in the consumer world. Yeah. You know, um, you're seeing different things in, in more traditional industries. It's still obviously much slower. But I think, I think you're right. And now the wearables, Bluetooth, all these technologies come together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of it's just enablement, right? Because now I have a phone that's actually a very powerful computer. Right. Where I've never had that before. I never had a computer I could take with me, mm-hmm. short of a laptop, yeah. which isn't really conducive to a lot of consumer lifestyle things. Suddenly I have a very powerful computer with me, and that unlocks, you know, it's kind of a, a tipping point, you might say, to unlock a lot of other things sure. until I have that. And now someday I'll implant it or something. But, right. but I think, uh, yeah, definitely things are getting faster, quicker, uh, but also easier. Right. Now you have you know, the iPad is a much easier, nicer device for my parents than trying to teach them how to use Windows. Of course. And so technology is not, I mean, the iPad itself, technology is nice, but it's more just a way of thinking. Of course, Apple drives a lot of this. Mm -hmm. How do you make it easier, simple, faster? And then that unlocks a lot of other things. Right. 
Cool. So you you worked in Silicon Valley for a bit. When did you get start getting involved in China, and, uh, wh- and why? Yeah, 2005. So I was actually uh, I used to go to school in Japan many okay. years ago. I would uh, did part of my MBA in Japan in the 80s. Oh, me too. Back when uh, not my MBA, but I went to school in Japan for a bit. Back when Japan was taking over the world. Sure, I was probably there before you. But yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was there when you know whatever one square meter of Tokyo is worth more than all of California. See that's type, a, type that's amazing. Idea. You get to see because you're in China, you've been in China for a similar period in their history as well, right? Extremely exactly. robust growth, and exactly. you saw it happen unfold in Japan and what ha- what how they managed it and what happened as a result. I'll get your take on that in a second, yeah. but, but go on. <clears throat> it was very interesting. So, yeah, I was there in '89 and uh, right at the peak of what they call the bubble. They still call it the bubble, sure. and uh, uh, it was very interesting and, and a lot of different things. But uh, I was also there when they changed emperors and all this sort of kind of change from the old to the new guard. It was mm-hmm. very interesting, but um. So I've always been interested in Asia, of course, and in business and been back somewhat. So I happened to be in Japan in 2004, end of the year, and I was uh, working on a book. And uh, <clears throat> if you ever try to write a book, it's impossible to find time to do it. And so I would go to Japan and hide in Tokyo and go, like, focus and try to get the darn thing, right. darn thing finished. It's a fun, fun place to hide. Yeah, well, then it's kind of, kind of productive sometimes. But, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, so I happened to meet a, a guy from IBM, a uh, senior IBM uh, uh, guy, who was running all of Asia for parts of IBM's consulting business. So I was talking about, hey, how do I come back to Japan? I was thinking about Japan at the time. Mm-hmm. Come back to Japan and um, you know, maybe work for IBM and then get settled and then kind of go from there, right? And he said, this is in uh, 2004, he said, yeah, there's no, no jobs in Japan because the economy was still quite poor. Mm-hmm. But have you thought about living in China, in Shanghai? And up until then, China really wasn't on my radar. Mm-hmm. I hadn't really thought about it much. Obviously, I've made in China, but hadn't thought about kind of being there. And so it took me a few minutes to think, well, can I sort of sell everything and sort of give up and just move to Shanghai? And about 30 minutes, I'm like, yeah, I could. <laughs> and so uh, uh, a couple months later, I started studying Chinese, and nine months later, I was here. Mm-hmm. And so uh, and then I split my time back and forth um, between Silicon Valley and here for a while. Involved <clears throat> in different projects? On yeah, because yeah, yeah. I wanted to make sure I could, could do something here sure. that I was useful. Sure. Fortunately, uh, Silicon Valley and Shanghai, then and now, still have probably the tightest relationship of any U.S.-Chinese cities. Really? Um, oh, think, yeah, sure. In terms of people back and forth, not only business-wise, investment-wise, but a lot of the returnee Chinese you meet here who are running companies, mm-hmm. their families all live in California. Right. And because they came back to start something and they left their family in high school, you know, whatever. Yeah. So, so I already had a lot of friends here. A lot of people had already had moved here or people said, hey, meet this guy, go see that guy. So I had quite a network even before I got here. Mm-hmm. So basically I spent time meeting people, networking, going to parties, talking to events and gradually getting consulting customers and started just doing things here and convinced myself that I could actually not starve. Right. And, uh, and so I gradually increased my time here until I was here full time. Right. Uh, so that was almost 10 years ago. Wow. And it was really very exciting. I wanted to come because, you know, it's like Japan, like you said, it's sort of a chance to watch an, another important country sort of blossom on the stage, if you will. Yeah. And also, like Japan, you know, China is very important, very large, even mm-hmm. larger. Uh, so the language, the culture, the people, all that stuff is, is really important to understand sort yeah. of for the future. And also, though unique to China, I think chance to watch an entire sort of society go from the 19th century to the 21st in 10 or 20 years. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Because it's just condensed, right? Every, every generation here, every five years here is a different generation of people. And from an anthropological point of view, and I love doing anthropology, yeah. kind of thinking about these societies, it, this is the only place to watch that, right? Totally. And then the Middle East has its own different ones. Africa has its own different sort of challenges. But China's doing all of this sort of going to iPhones. You, know, you have, you know, uh, pig farmers with iPhones, yeah. right? All of kind of in one little one little microcosm in yeah. some village somewhere. I'm, that, I'm, that's cool. I'm constantly 
just in awe of the the dynamic that's transpired. I mean, the, here over the last ten years, the last fifty years, the last hundred years, their ancient history, their postmodern history, their their tumultuous history, the culture, the language, the everything that's going on. I mean, it's just such a compelling and interesting place to be over the last. Well, pick your time period, but especially now because you're seeing the confluence of all those things and the compounding of all those things, but also the rapid way in which old old ideas, old cultural items are being shed and new things are being onboarded and adopted at an extremely fast pace. Yeah, absolutely. Also, you know, I'm a big student of, of China's recent history, mm-hmm. sort of in the, from 1850 on. Yeah. I think I've read about every book uh, about, about that period. And, and so it's really very interesting because it's a lot of what's going on now is exactly what happened then. Right. You know, almost, if you go back and read about, you know, and whether it's the things you want to complain about, like employees or issues or culture or new technology, if you go back to 1910, 1920, all the newest technology was here the same way. Right. You know, that the second or third movie theater or movie place in the world was Shanghai. Yeah. You know, it was like Hollywood, New York, and Shanghai, right? Things yeah. came here first. Well, in the 20s and 30s, right? <clears throat> Shanghai was an extremely... Cultural, culturally exactly. rich city, right? And people were studying English. International city. Yeah. yeah. Young people studied English, and uh, there's a lot of poverty here, too, and a lot of, sure. obviously, differences, and, and the Chinese were not well treated in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But sort of the upper classes were teaching English, they were wearing Western clothes, they were bringing in all kinds of technology, they were, you know, going to Harvard, all this sort of stuff, and to some extent we're repeating that. Yeah. And we're repeating that sometimes in the same buildings that it happened 100 <laughs> years ago. And, you know, in the same mechanisms. And Which same is part of the charm of Shanghai versus other Chinese cities. It has that old exactly. world sort of colonial culture, right? Exactly. You can work, walk the streets where these things happen, right. both good and bad. And, yeah. and so, you know, in a lot of some, some of the same problems they had then, they, they still have. Sure. And uh, uh, things are much better off, obviously, all the way around. But right. I find that very interesting because some of the same, same threads run through a lot of stuff. Yeah, and, me too. Me too. Um, so you you arrived in China in 2004 then. You, you dipped your feet in the water. You found a way to, to keep the, the food and the roof over your head. Then at some point you started with Tudo, right? Which, correct, correct, yeah. So I came in 2005. Right. But, um, 2005 yeah, so. yeah, in 2007 I was uh, looking for more substantial things to do and ended up uh, getting connected with uh, some of Tudo's investors and so on. I was looking for CTO-type uh, jobs, yep. chief, chief technology officer. And Tudo was looking for that also. So right. we sort of got connected and did some consulting with them and kind of worked back and forth and finally ended up joining them full time. And for those who don't know, Tudo is now one of the largest Chinese video uh, hosting sites in the country, right? Uh, correct. So even at the time, we were bigger than YouTube. Wow. So when they started, they're actually older than YouTube. So Are they? Yeah, they when, are. When did they start? 2005, I believe. Okay. And so you know, even though... Yes, reality is a lot of uh, companies in China are copies of Western models. Uh-huh. Uh, Tudo is actually six months older than YouTube. No way. And originally started as a video podcast idea and eventually started doing video. And, of course, the video market then and now in China is much different than the West right. uh, in terms of, of the content and so on. But, yeah, they de- definitely not a copy of you. YouTube still doesn't have some of the features that, you, that Tudo had then. Right. Because it was a uh, – Tudo and these companies really were video – broadcasting companies in the sense they were TV channels. Right. And they did they held, create their own content? They did later. But did reality is it was mostly uh, pirated foreign shows early on right. and Chinese shows. But which was great if you lived here then. It was great if you lived here. And, and, and also shows and amazing sort of things it sort of demonstrates you would have things like Sex in the City show in the US at say nine PM on a Monday. Right. Within a couple hours that would have been downloaded or uploaded subtitled by entire societies of people who just live to subtitle, right. which is a, not an easy job, subtitled and uploaded and coded and so on. 
and then released. And so that, for example, we had features to release stuff. So you as the, because each person would become a publisher, uh-huh. you would release it to your like 50 million followers. And we would have massive downloads in the next hour because they'd all want to you know, download the latest thing. But the whole sort of production cycle all sort of by people randomly by themselves. And you'd follow certain people. Like, I like your subtitle, so I would follow you, not that guy. Oh, okay. And so subtitlers and sort of uploaders had uh, email lists and followers and comments, and you could sub- you know, do things. But uh, <clears throat> it was very interesting. And right. so... Uh, and was there, just w- w- just touching on the IP issue with, with early Chinese video sites like that, was there, you know, would the content creators in the U.S. and Europe and wherever they're coming from even attempt to contact companies like Tudo and be like, hey, you shouldn't be doing that? Or did everyone just know that you're not going to get anywhere with, with um, that sort of thing in China? I think time? that, I wasn't really close to that, but it changed over time. Yeah. I think early on, people just ignored everything, as I could tell. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, there's, there's more, was and still is, more work to try to regularize that, right. particularly when you started doing advertising. Because the, the dynamic was, you didn't want to be... Advertise. You didn't want to, you know, Coca-Cola is not going to advertise. It does not want to advertise next to an illegally a pirated, pirated program. Yeah. And then, so you have the question, well, which of the things you have are pirated? Which is actually a very hard question to answer. Right. Because <clears throat> people are uploading stuff. You don't even know what it is. So it could be a video of my cat. Mm-hmm. Or it could be Sex in the City. How do you tell the difference? Right. From the title? You know, it's, it's actually a really hard problem. And, and 100 people upload Sex in the City or 1,000 yeah. every day. And so we're getting fifty or 100,000 new videos every day. Well, go figure out which ones of those are pirated. Right. That is still a ridiculously difficult problem. Sure. And then try to find the licenses. So it all evolved over time. There was definitely an effort to, and still is, to, re- to regularize this, to buy licenses and get proper contracts. And, and it's an ongoing process, but it was a, a dynamic, uh, it wasn't as a dynamic process. Sure, I bet. Now, Tudo was a, a startup, right? It wasn't Correct. one of these, uh, you know, uh, uh, pr- properties developed by Tencent or one oh, of no, the no, companies. No, it, was a, it was a startup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, 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 was, what was it like and what are the differences between being a, a, a startup in mainland China versus Silicon Valley, cultural-wise and, and operations-wise? Well, that was interesting. When I started working with them, they had about 35 people. And when I left, they had about 350, wow. uh, most of which were sales. <clears throat> but right. startups, I think this is starting to change or has changed. This was, you know, they started 10 years ago. Mm. Startups were, were very... Startups were very uh, rudimentary, I guess you'd say. You know, very common to have bunk beds in the office. Right. I just read something about Alibaba's early days, so they had apartments and, and rooms full of people who could sleep. You real, know, so, real bootstrap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, almost like construction sites here, right? Yeah, yeah. Construction sites here provide housing, and you sleep there, so it's yeah. a very low cost, mm-hmm. um, which you don't see in the West. And so that's U- using the term housing fairly loosely. Loosely, yeah. although not so bad, perhaps. But uh, depends where. But uh, in Shanghai, <laughs> sure. I think. But um, uh, you, you know, you don't see that anymore. Right. I haven't been in a startup that had sleeping beds sure. in a long time. But but ten years ago, they were really common. Mm-hmm. So that's one difference. You also still have this you know concept, I think, in China that is not less common elsewhere of sort of the the laoban. They tend to be the right. boss, right? So you have a, the founder and a lot of minions. Right. Where companies in Silicon Valley tend to be the reverse. If you're not careful, you have nine founders and three employees. Right. And you have chief bottle washer, and you have all these other useless jobs, and not enough people to do stuff. Um, here, it tends to be one or two founders and no management and just a lot of people. Right. And so uh, when I got to Tudo, it was like that. There was sort of the, the CEO and a couple people helping, and then just an army of people, like 35, 40 people. So I was part of the first wave of, 
of sort of VP and manager types to sort of come in and regularize that. And so that was a big transition, I think, for the company. And still in a market we didn't know how to make money in and what to do with. And so was there other quote unquote Laowise working uh, there at the so time? So I was the first. Okay. And that must have uh, been interesting. That was interesting. Yeah. And uh, my Chinese was definitely not very good. And so that was a struggle. Yeah. And so I was the only Laowai. Uh, soon after, about whatever, three months later, uh, Dan Brody, um, who's well fairly well known around, uh, joined from Google. Uh-huh. And so Dan's a fluent Chinese speaker. And so, so he made you look bad. Not so much. No, not so much. Dan's great, and uh, but Dan had come from, from Google, uh-huh. and where he was Google employee number one in China, actually. Wow. And of course, Google is lavish with just staff and money and all this. So he had expectations that were quite high, right? Which weren't always met by a small, scrappy Shanghai startup. Sure. It was quite interesting. But he could yell at them and swear at people in Chinese pretty effectively, and and I couldn't. Important. But uh, it was quite interesting. <laughs> they, they, yeah, he, they screwed up his visa, and he was unhappy about that. <laughs> Lots of choice words, but. Um, but anyway, so uh, yeah, so it was only the two of us, right? And then, uh, and is it is it a more? I I see it being a more rigid startup culture because everyone everyone has seen images in in Silicon Valley and other places where it's pool tables and sushi and colors everywhere and a, 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 a culture of failure and innovation and you know that sort of thing. Here was it a bit more like just head down work or was it? Yeah, I think you have to separate those things a little bit. Yeah. It's uh, definitely head down work. Not that the you know the counterparts in the West don't have that attitude, but you know what I mean. It's, right, right. Uh, it's definitely. I was impressed with, it and remain impressed with the work ethic. People work very hard. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily work seven days a week like you might see in the West. Uh, it's hard to get our employees to sort of have that perspective uh, as much. Uh, although they do work hard and work late, uh, and sort of, but it's very much an overtime sensitivity here that there isn't so much in Silicon Valley. So people work let, work hard and. I'm not sure it's really very strict. What you don't have, though, is sort of the the uh, dynamic free-for-all exchange of ideas, sort of the, that classic innovation challenge. It's still very much a, a the boss says this, we do this, right, as right. opposed to coming up with new ideas, thinking outside the box, thinking about my products. You know, developers classically are not you know given ideas about product here, which they would be, I think, more in the West. And that you must slow inv- innovation to some degree. You, oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the innovation comes from the top right. uh, broadly. And that's not true in every company, in every place, of course. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's still a cultural environment in which we're working that, that is uh, still, uh, still a challenge. Sure. And so what year did you leave Trudeau? Uh, 2008. 2008. And why did you leave? Uh, a variety of reasons. One, it was just it was a, you know, an ongoing challenge to be the only Laowai uh, there and, right. and the company dynamics and, and so on. But also, uh, I wanted to start this. Yeah. Uh, so so yeah. right after Trudeau, you... Started laying the groundwork for China Netcloud? Correct, correct. Because the problem we had at Tudo, one of the problems, and that I saw, the, the problem we wanted to fulfill is, you know, we're Tudo, right? We're really famous, have lots of money, had, uh, uh, you know, very well-known kind of thing. And we couldn't find enough engineers and enough people to run our systems. Right. And it was just very difficult, um, being ridiculously famous, to get people. It's like being Microsoft kind mm. of thing, right? And you can't find people. And so if you can imagine that's difficult for them then what is it like for every other company here? And again, we're in the world's largest internet. We've got 600 million users mm-hmm. growing fast and all this. Who's going to build and run all this stuff? And so the idea was to start the company to solve that problem, right. so fill this big gap. And at the time and now, the Chinese internet is getting more and more, let's call it serious. So mm-hmm. you have to make money. Now, if you're doing videos and they're all free, or you're doing blogs <clears throat> and you lose a couple, 
eh, not a big deal. My yeah. video doesn't play. Sure. But if you're doing e-commerce, you're doing banking, you're doing you know, healthcare, and you screw things up or lose stuff, this is much more serious. Yeah. And so not only is the place growing faster, but it's becoming more rigorous, more, more serious in a whole lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And yet the amount of people available to do the technical work uh, is really not growing very fast. And yeah. that's true across a whole variety of professional uh, areas in China. You don't have people to make coffee. Or to, or to run hotels, sure. or to do any, you know, lawyers. There's just not enough people, given how fast the economy has grown. Yeah. But in our little sector of the world... Or at least qualified people, right? Uh, yeah, and experience, because yeah. you know, who has 20 years running hotels? Sure. Nobody, sure. right? Who has yeah. 20 years doing anything um, in a lot of sectors yeah. is, a, is a serious challenge. And so, and then when you grow it, you know, 100% a year, there just can't be enough lawyers, everything go, to go around, sure. right? So same problem in our, in our world, where it's grown, you know, whatever, 20 times in 10 years, and there's 20 guys. Mm-hmm. And, and so... That was why we started the company. And how did it? What were the early days like? I mean, you, did you have a clear vision from the beginning? And yeah, you thought, yeah, yes, because we, a, a lot of <clears throat> a lot of entrepreneurs and and people that are either in the startup industry or want to be, listen to this show, I'm sure. Um, and you know, can you give them? I mean, obviously, you're coming from a very experienced background, which might be a bit different from them. But when you left Tudo, it could be akin to taking away that safety net a bit. Everyone has to make that choice at some point in their career. What? How, what were the early days of China Net Cloud like? Where was your head at, and how did you push things forward? Yeah, it's uh, probably a little bit different because, yeah, we had kind of seen the industry closer and, and had I've been in a lot of startups right. and experience. But we, um, we did have a pretty good vision, I think, that we're still adhering to here mm-hmm. five, six years later. That we actually uh, had a meeting at Starbucks uh, in, in uh, June of 2008 and sketched out sort of where we fit in the ecosystem and kind of what we'd be doing and how it figured out. And uh, that diagram's on our wall today. And we're still doing that. Right. Um, and there was competitors at the time. No, right? no, no, there's still wasn't. no competitors, really. Really? And so, yeah, we still are doing fairly unique uh, things. Even in the West, there's very few companies doing this. Uh, doing what specifically? Cloud? No, doing, cloud doing operations. Operations. So really people that will come in and either take over your existing system. So mm-hmm. we're, we're one of the very few in the world who will come in and take over an existing large system and fix everything. So it's like repairing your car while it's running. Right. So we have network, we have one right now that's, you know, maybe 50 servers, lots of problems, lots of issues, security problems, reliability problems, everything problems. Mm-hmm. And we will come in and overhaul it completely <clears throat> and fix it and operate it while it's running, wow. uh, and while it has millions of users. So very, almost nobody does that because right. it's really difficult. Separately, so, if you're a new company coming to us and say, hey, I'm going to come to China or I'm in China or I'm starting something, we're going to launch a new, like we just launched a new uh, uh, medical site mm-hmm. for a, a big Chinese company. And, you know, just started last week and we're going to have it built this month <clears throat> and released. And so we will build and run that for them. So other people that can do that, uh, you know, very few. A lot of people can plug the hardware together and can plug all the cables and right. make it all work. And, okay, it's all running here. Good luck. And walk out. We don't walk out. We actually pick it up from there and run it for its lifetime. Right. So, so being, being that you, you take that approach and there, there weren't uh, any competitors, was it, A, a hard uh, sell at the beginning to convince people of what you guys do and the value of it? Or, B, was it something when, pe- when you inform people or pitch people that you were providing that service, they were like, well, thank God, let's, let's get going? Uh, yeah, both. Yeah. Uh, I think in China we're a little early. Um, because people here do not, from the Chinese side, don't outsource. And, you know, services are sort of a whole new uh, concept anyway. Right. Just the idea of buying services. Very much people want to buy hardware. (coughs) 
they won't very much want to sort of touch things and have it very concrete because then, you know, I can't be cheated or I can't be stolen and yeah. trusted. It's mine. It's yeah. sort of assets. Like buying houses here, right? It's a massive sort of drive to physicality. Sure. So even in large companies paying for services, consulting, these kind of things, uh, even lawyers struggle with this. Nobody wants to pay for their advice, mm-hmm. right? Even though it's obviously very important. So I think that's changed over a number of years. And my partner saw this also. He was in the consulting business mm-hmm. where people didn't want to pay. They pay a lot for hardware but pay nothing for how to use it, mm. and which is sort of backwards sure. in, in a lot of things. So um, we still have that challenge. Uh, it's evolved quite a bit. And fortunately, we're on the Internet, which is very fast-moving. People are very young. They're very internationalized. They've done a lot of things, so they, they understand a lot of these things. But it's still a challenge sometimes to explain, you know, pay us money for, for nothing right. in the sense of a service. <laughs> right. a service that Can't hold it in your hand. <clears throat> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, now, where is China next? I mean, do you guys have, like, football fields of servers somewhere? Or do you, I mean, how does, what does China Net look like now? I know you've got some, well, several clients, but from looking on your website, you've got some big clients. Where are you guys now in terms of your position, your market, and your growth trajectory over the next however many years? Sure. So we, we do not have a lot of servers. Uh-huh. Uh, we mostly leverage our partners. So okay. we are actually China's oldest cloud computing company. Uh-huh. We offered cloud computing Amazon's type cloud computing in 2008. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but for us, that's not an ideal business. It's a high capital, sort of low margin business. Mm-hmm. We only did it because nobody else was doing it and because we wanted to build expertise and we wanted to build <clears throat> a lot of uh, technology and so on in that. So today, we don't have to do that. We can leverage our partners like Alibaba mm-hmm. uh, and Tencent and Amazon and, and a lot of others. So your so, core business is more on the management and operational side? Exactly. Right. Very much on, on building and operating things. So uh, that's nice because we actually capture more of the revenue stack and for less of the capital. Mm-hmm. So we get paid more than the guys who build the servers, but we don't have to buy any servers. Right. So we have to focus on the people, of course, and processes and systems and technology and tools, and we have a lot of those things. Mm-hmm. And so we have uh, yeah, nearly 100 people uh, based in Shanghai, and we have a sales office in Beijing and now in Silicon Valley. And um, Have you yeah, had to have... raise money? Oh, yes. Yeah? Yes. Yeah. So we, another part of our challenge, and so you mentioned how we, how we started out, so we started in June with this diagram we wanted to do, yeah. and we started putting together how we're going to do it and different things. We had very fortunate to have some friends hook us up with uh, some friends that had office space and actually a company who had become our first customer. And we moved into their office. It was me, my partner James, and my assistant from Tudo who came with us. Uh-huh. And so it was three of us, and they had about 25 people in their office. A year later, there was 25 of us and three of them. And uh, we still in this office, and we, we eventually sort of took it over right. and, and ate the whole thing. But um, <clears throat> this was in 2008, you might remember. So this was in August. We moved into the office, and in September, went out to raise money. And you might remember that in September, the entire world economy <laughs> fell off a cliff. Tough time to raise money, yeah. And so you would go to angels and say, well, I want to raise money. And they're like, well, I have no idea how much we money I even have. <laughs> well, I don't even know how much I have, right, because yeah. it's in free fall sure. and all this. So come back later. And so our original plan to raise half a million or a million dollars sort of morphed into friends and family right. and other people. And so we raised not that much, 100, 100 something thousand, mm-hmm. which lasted us a year. Wow. Because unusual, and then we raised more, and we've, and we've been raising ever since. Yeah. We've raised about a million and a half uh, totals now over five years. Because we're a little bit unusual, unlike a lot of product companies, is that we had, and we were worried about this because we're sort of two white guys here in China. Right. And, and, and you were, were you approaching Chinese VCs? No, or, most or, of our money comes from Silicon Valley. Okay. Mm-hmm. And we uh, sort of two white guys starting a business here and want to be able to prove we can do this. Mm. So we actually had 
an office, employees, customers, and revenue before we had a legal company. Right. In the sense that we had it all put together and then it kind of all came together right at sure. once. We had it all lined up versus let's start a company, let's get money, and then let's go find customers and let's spend a year kind of getting somewhere. Yeah. We sort of put it all together um, in the fall of 2008. Is that, of, is that how people kind of, especially entrepreneurs in the tech scene especially, kind of have to go just given the amount of time it takes to start up a company here? And, oh, that's what I would advise. Yeah. I'm not sure people would do that. Right. Um, I think a lot of people operate under the radar also yeah. because if you don't have revenue – you sort of don't need to do that. You can work as a set of loose contractors sure. and just go get somebody's office and build a product, which is how I think most people do it. Yeah. But we're offering a professional service. Sure. And so customers want to see licenses and they want to invoice you and you have FAPIAO and bank payments. Yeah, and yeah. So we had revenue right from day one. And that, that's unusual. Right. Reality is most startups that are doing you know, development startups don't have that. They right. have an incubation period. Um, so that was a little bit different for us, but mm-hmm. obviously the more cash you can get in early. So we were cash flow either positive or, or at least had money coming in right from the beginning. Right. And so that helped us sustain the business for a long time and be able to grow um, sort of through that. And then we've grown about 100% a year. Wow. Um, not every year, but mostly through those, through those years. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we'll grow another 100% this year. And so, but we still need to grow faster. Now, we're still a little early. So are you trying to, will you be raising money in the future to, you know, Expand more rapidly, yes. Because yes. Your, your the company is obviously making money, and you can sustain yourselves and grow at a certain clip with your ongoing operations, right? But well, we to- we have been. Um, we're not making money right now because we're uh, because if you make money, you, know, you can't use the investment. So we're actually <laughs> investing. Right. We just raised some more money uh, this spring, and we are investing in additional uh, sales and and operational resources now to right. sort of grow into the fall. And we'll raise more money this fall, right. Right, end of this year. Um, and what what sort of big clients do you guys have? In, you know, using uh, as clients, using your services, uh, operational clients? There's a whole lot. Um, some we can't talk about, right. unfortunately, some of the more exciting ones. But uh, uh, one of our customers, for example, is ASOS, mm-hmm. which is a large, we have a lot of foreign companies coming in. So ASOS is a big European, mm-hmm. uh, the biggest European sort of e-commerce company. Um, and so we build and run their operation here in China. Right. So that's very exciting. They came to us uh, to build a big private cloud, and that's been very successful. And mm-hmm. then we also... Um, uh, have a number of other European retailers and, and some American stuff. Uh, we have a number of also Chinese uh, games and operations and, and companies. I'm not sure how I can mention. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, I noticed yeah. on your website just a point of interest. We had Pascal Coppins from Let's Face on yes. uh, here a, f- a few weeks ago, and I noticed that you guys work with them. Yes, yeah, we've been with Let's Face. Website. I think since the beginning or very early on when yeah. they first when they first launched. Right. Yeah. So where do you see China NetCloud in five years? Uh, we're taking over the world. Uh, that's actually, it's actually on our, on our business card. It says running all the world's internet servers. Right. And uh, we take that very seriously. The, um, the company we look at as sort of our analog sort of outside of China is a company called Rackspace, yep. which is based in, in Texas. And so they're one of our partners for a lot of things. And they're doing about a billion and a half dollars in this space, um, even though – we do a lot of things they can't do, mm-hmm. uh, and they do things that, that we wouldn't do in terms of uh, data centers and so on. But they're doing nearly a billion dollars just in what we do. And so that's where we see ourselves. Right. Uh, maybe not to the billion-dollar level yet, but, <clears throat> but everything we do works in China, in you know, U.S., in you know, Europe, everywhere around the world. Right. And so we really see uh, this expanding and taking over the world. Right. Uh, there are 10 million servers out there. We want to run them all. Uh, and so we, we gear ourselves, though, for that kind of scale, sure. even though we can't do it today, obviously. Now, you, you mentioned that what you guys provide, the service you provide, is somewhat different than 
AWS and, and a few of the other big players out there. Do you see at some point in your expansion coming up against them in competition, or do you offer a slightly different approach that competition with them is not going to be direct? No, yeah, definitely. We are definitely complementary to all of these guys. Right. So uh, we're an Amazon reseller, mm-hmm. and one of their we're their core launch partner here in China. When they launched last year um, in December, did the big thing. We're their operations um, cool. sort of management partner, uh, along with some of our other partners. So it's all all in the family, you might say. But um, no, we sit on top of that. So their job is to provide the cloud infrastructure and the servers. Our job is to build and run to manage it all. Right. So they're. Critical, they and other people too. Uh, in China, our big partner for this is Alibaba, mm-hmm. Aliyuin, and so uh, we launch customers on that platform. We're one of Aliyuin, Alibaba's biggest resellers today. Mm-hmm. And so, no, this is not competitive at all in that sense. They really can't do what we do. Right. Some of them have tried. Um, and reality is around the world, any sort of data center or infrastructure provider that's ever tried this, other than Rackspace, has failed. Right. Uh, because it's such a different, it's extremely high touch, it's very high velocity, it's very high integration. Um, on the internet side, it's very difficult. There are a lot of companies that do what we do on the enterprise, on the business side. I mean, uh-huh. IBM does this, HP, all these big guys for corporations. Mm-hmm. So they will run, if you're Citibank, IBM will come in and take over and run everything for you. It's great business. But they won't do it on the internet side. Right. It's much, much faster, much more difficult. So maybe they'll buy us someday. But, <laughs> but we're in the exciting part because fortunately for us, all of their stuff is all moving online. Right. You know, it's not the other way around. So yeah. everybody's coming to our playground and we'll be the dominant player. And so that's a good thing. Exciting. Yeah. So being that you're in China, I wanted to ask you, you know, because you have a real, you probably encounter this on a day-to-day basis. What's the, the state of the union on the Chinese internet and why does it, Get slower when it rains here. You know what, what? What's with all the issues with the Chinese internet and the speed, and how does that impact your business? Well, there's different issues. Uh, the Chinese internet is is a sort of big, interesting place. Uh, we actually publish books on this topic on like running running infrastructure in China and the Chinese internet sort of structure, both legally and other things. I think you have to differentiate though between domestic performance and international performance. Right. So as foreigners, people say, oh, well, geez, the Internet's slow. They usually mean the Internet from the West is slow. You know, I can't I mean, load my website. Using a pro- uh, oh, websites from the West. Yeah, like yeah, I can't read my newspapers or I can't get on my banking or I can't X, Y, and Z, right? right. My, my sites outside of China are slow, which obviously are not a priority for the Chinese. Mm-hmm. Um, that is definitely the case. There's the Great Firewall. There's just underseas cables that are always busy, and there's right. security issues. And this is getting worse, certainly. Yeah. Um, Domestically, it's a completely different issue, though, for regular Chinese users. Actually, it's gotten better, I think, over the years. The problems we had when we were at Tudo were much worse. Uh, and part has to do with the way the Internet is structured here. The you know, connectivity, you know, there's, there's uh, northern, northern Internet sort of infrastructure in southern, so the China Netcom in the north, China Telecom in the south, plus the mobile networks, plus the student networks. And these things are not really well connected and so it's not nearly as easy as you would think and not nearly as easy in, as in the West to connect all this together. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not so easy to just go buy a server, put it on the Internet, and make it available beautifully to everybody. That's very expensive. Right. A lot of our clients do that because they tend to be more premium brands, higher end, you know, uh, and you can get buy and get better performance for that. Yeah. But for your average random guy building something small, that's not so easy. And although it has been getting better because um, – this multi-connected sort of interconnection system is getting uh, less expensive and becoming more common, and all the, well, many of the clouds have it. Right. So one of the advantages now of actually going on Aliyuin or Alibaba's cloud is you get extremely good connectivity almost for free. Right. Where before, 
you had to pay a lot of money to get that. So we do put people there for that. Mm -hmm. So that I think is helping, but not all clouds can afford that. So that's another right. issue. You also have a, a bird's eye view, I guess we can say, on the tech and startup scene because you work with so many of the companies. You For so many of those companies, you are a sort of backbone or you're an essential component to their operations. Everyone we have on this show, we, we talk about how the tech and startup scene is growing, specifically in China um, and in Shanghai, obviously, given you know that's where we are. What's your take on over the past five years or over the past two years, how much things have grown, how much the activity, how much more activity there is this year than last versus the year prior? Just, you know, what's your general take on, on the startup and, and tech scene generally? I don't know if I have a good sense of, of how the growth is going. Um, I think there's more, there's always been the split between Shanghai and Beijing. Sure. And I think it appears that Beijing is sort of pulling more ahead. They're already were ahead and had more stuff. They're mm -hmm. finally getting more organized. Uh, Innovation Works and companies like that, I think, have helped up there. Uh, sort of the whole high DN area and so on is getting more organized and producing better stuff and, and investors. Um, there's certainly a lot more investment going on and a little more diversity, uh, and you're getting more stuff in the South. So I think definitely it's all a good market. It's still, uh, to me, broadly, you know, lags so far behind Silicon Valley and its ability to put people and service providers and ideas together. Mm -hmm. You, you know, uh, everywhere in the world lags behind. But to go, you know, like I said, uh, if you look at these sites in, in the Valley that, that list all the events, you, know, you, could, you could go to 100 a day on everything in the world. The mm -hmm. latest Java programming thing, the hottest biotech, wearables X, Y, and Z, legal issues of, you know, patents in Africa, right. you know, all kinds of things. And it's every day relentless, and you have none of that here. You know, there's a little more on the Chinese side, but sort of the whole networking, the whole connecting people. Of course, there's Guanxi and these things, very important. But the communities coming together, a lot of it happens online. You know, people are on Weibo or whatever and kind of talking about stuff. But, but the getting bodies in a room to work on stuff and network and meet people and cross-fertilize and people moving between companies is still not, and nowhere in the world is nearly what Silicon Valley sure, is. But, sure, But that's still a missing, given how big the market is here, that seems yeah. that's still missing. I mean, Heidi does a little bit of that, but a lot of students up there. And, yeah. Yeah, we've had some people on the show actually that are involved in kind of those community building, you right. know, the bar camps. And yeah, the, that and sort the, yeah. that sort of stuff. And great to see, obviously, because those are the initial steps in bringing that community together and like-minded individuals being able to share ideas and connect with each other. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think anyone would argue that it's a long ways behind most of the, you know, Silicon Valley or New York or London yeah, or Tel Aviv or, or wherever. Anywhere, yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's a, that's a challenge. I mean, bar camp those guys help. They're sort of the same as they were five years ago, yeah. eight years ago when I first started going to them, yeah. and the same people go. Uh, so you're not getting a lot of new cross for, and they're you know it's one every quarter kind right. of thing. And, and this, this moment tech crunch is happening in Beijing. That's actually pretty good. That's a big event, right? Um, well, hopefully so it's they, getting there. Those, yeah, more, little by little. And little actually, little. we've got uh, Bob of People Squared. I don't know if you're familiar with the workspace People Squared. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think they started about two or three years ago with one space, and I think this year they're opening their sixth, and it's a big co-working space. So those sort of things and community events happen there, and obviously the spread of co-working spaces is indicative of you know the the tenant the tenants that are occupying them. So yeah, it absolutely. Seems, seems also to be the, the, the 3D printer stuff and the hacker markets and kind of the yeah. electronics guys putting together little innovative devices. Yeah, and, well, know. yeah, and that's a great point. The hardware market, especially in China, because this is the the epicenter for hardware, certainly. And uh, we had uh, Todd from China Accelerator on here uh, a 
couple of weeks ago. And obviously, um, Cyril is down in uh, Shenzhen right. doing the Hackcelerator, which is completely hardware-based, which uh, by all accounts is doing very well. And obviously, that's really well-positioned for China because that's where most of that stuff takes place, and the procurement and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And also, that's another example of low cost, right? If I, have yeah. a, I can dream a device and I can get it built right. and I can make something and try it, Unthinkable, even yeah. ten years ago, how I can you know, if I want to make a new microwave or a new XY, right. it was a million dollars and a year to get something built. And now, for a variety of reasons, I can put it together. And because three D printing is another whole whole world yet to Game begin changer, to start, yeah, you know. For sure. Uh, and so those are all, and China will do better, like you said, in those, and is a little better positioned in some ways. Right. Uh, and the low cost, of course, is very important. Yeah. A lot of guys have ideas that you just need need a, a to way to, to get it out there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we're going to change it up a bit now, Steve. We, you've done a number of things in your career. Um, one of them is you've recently written a book, I believe, right? Yeah, about 10 years ago. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, 10 years yeah, ago. Yeah. Not so recent. But it was called Offshoring the Middle Class. Can, can, can I just get a, uh, a review or a brief overview of, of what that book was about? And if it was 10 years ago, how any of your predictions there have uh, either been confirmed or you know, or, or didn't come true? Right. Well, the review is it's a great book. <laughs> everyone, everyone says that. Um, but... Uh, it was an interesting process, and so uh, I was actually looking for something to write about. And uh, yeah, so it's really about two different things, and it's about offshoring and the concept, fundamental concept of was concept of offshoring the middle class, as the title suggests. And I, you know, I went to school in Japan in the '80s, and I'm an old manufacturing guy, so wow. I grew up building factories and, and construction and all that. So heavy industry actually is my my first love. All this stuff is secondary. Oh, really? uh, I love big machinery and and uh, and factory systems, but. The idea was, you know, that's normal. We saw that in the 70s and 80s where your, you know, rust belt, auto manufacturing, machinery, whatever, sort of all got offshore basically to Japan right. or other places. And so those industries got hollowed out. And if you ever spent any time in Detroit, which I have, uh, it's a pretty sad, depressing yeah, it's not a pretty sad kind of place. Yeah. And so, but that, you know, my thesis sort of is people expect that a little bit. Hey, if you, you know, if you go today, go to school and sort of don't graduate from high school or don't get a college degree and you have a blue collar job, you know, uh, in a factory, you're kind of not surprised that someone else can do that similar job of screwing nuts on a, screwing, you know, tires on a car mm-hmm. somewhere else cheaper than you, right? And they're not surprised, kind of, even though it's unhappy to get offshore. But what happens when that happens to the middle class? What happens when you're sort of, uh, the accounting you know, white guy, the- you know, in, in, in Colorado who's got an MBA, who's been doing accounting for an insurance company for 10 years, makes $100,000 a year and has right. a very nice home, and his job gets offshore to India. Right. This is different. That's my central thesis. Sure. And uh, for a variety of reasons, you know, and then what does that mean? And so what happens? Why does it happen? And sort of following up on, on Tom Friedman's book, uh, World, is World is Flat, Flag. which came out at the same time mm-hmm. or just before. Really? His, that was 10 years ago now. Yeah. Wow. And uh, his book was really The World's Flat and Here's Why. Yeah. Good luck. And so I tried to be a little more The World's Flat, that's why, and, and here's what we can do about it. Right. And so I was concerned most about you know, what happens when that happens, right? Because the middle class becomes very upset and, uh, of course, politics and all that kind of stuff. And then really about what can we do about that and so how do we better prepare our, our citizenry for you know, this type of thing, right? Mm-hmm. And then a lot of stuff about globalization, teaching languages, having more of a clue about the rest of the planet, mm-hmm. um, sort of a big piece about that kind of thing. Uh, and also more to appreciate sort of foreign interaction. And, and, and so, you know, you can't fix that completely. Right. So how do you lessen the impact? You know, so it's very easy to demonize foreigners. And we see that in other parts of the, Euro- the world, like yeah. in, in Europe right now. 
So how do you get people more comfortable with foreignness, you might say, and mm -hmm. foreigners who don't demonize, you know, all the Mexicans and all the Chinese and all the people that are stealing all of our jobs, right? How do you impact that? How do you impact the next generation by, by better teaching, internationalizing the younger people uh, to have more skills that are useful, but also to have more international component? And just how do you integrate better? Right. Um, as, as you sort of see in New York and California and different places, but right. that doesn't happen in Kansas, right. you know, and so how do you deal with that? And then also other practical things about, you know, how do you forward more innovation, more immigration, more tax issues, right. patent reform, you know, a lot, I guess a lot of that kind of stuff thought, that, I, that to me are, are, are helpful in, in, in sort of this overall competition. Right. I'd be interested in reading it because it is, I mean, there's, it's such a multifaceted issue, right? right? I mean, from the macroeconomic level all the way down to the education, individual education. I mean, there's so many factors that lead to the circumstances of your accounting job being better done and cheaper in India, in China, or, or whatever the case may be, or whether you know whether it's manufacturing, whether it's services, exactly. increasingly moving there. And you know, you can obviously, uh, and as an individual, you can differentiate your education and and be more aware and think with clarity and, and maybe take a different vein and differentiate yourself that, that way, specialize. But, you know, from a macroeconomic standpoint, if the government is doing things with the currency and with the trade laws and with the immigration laws, it's still really going to put you behind the eight ball. So it's so many different things that, that cause that shift. And I guess, the, you know, and I'll get your take on this. Obviously, right now in, in the American middle class, we're seeing a, a severe uh, well, the middle class is shrinking dramatically, you know, and, and wealth is shifting to, you know, to the upper, you know, let's call it 1%, whatever it might be. Um, what do you see? And not with, you know, it's always interesting to consider how certain innovations in various industries might be able to turn that trend around. But you wrote a book on it. So what's your take on it? Yeah, I mean, I guess broadly, I'm not overly concerned about all the shifts. In terms of the result, I, mean, I want to be part of the one percent, sort of. Right? Yeah. <laughs> sure. but, but that one—it's always been there. Yeah. Uh, now maybe it's a little more or less. I think you know, dealing with that—they're not such an issue as much as how do we fix the middle class? Right? Yeah, exactly. And, and the lower classes, who are the working poor and so on, which I have a lot more more, more sympathy for. Mm -hmm. And and yeah, all the things you mentioned are, are important, um, especially things like you know, what industry can you do? Right? Trade and things are, are certainly important. Trying to promote exports mm -hmm. is, is something I cover, and you know, Obama people are trying to do that. I think that's underappreciated, right. and we need to export more. I mean, I, you know, we export big stuff, airplanes and so on, but don't forget the guy who makes, makes you know, biomedical pumps. And you can see this in China. You, know, you walk into hospitals or other places, and you find equipment made by some random guy you never heard of in Kansas mm -hmm. you know, for some specific need. Well, how do we help him? Yeah. You know, how do we, and I think the government is doing better at that. But also, how do you do more uh, industries? So the one I point out in the book, and one of the more important ones, is the whole space thing. Mm -hmm. So this is SpaceX and Elon Musk and all these guys. Yeah. Um, extremely exciting. In the sense that, one, it's just cool. And I'm, I, I, <laughs> yeah, love, I cool. love space and yeah. flight and airplanes and all that and, yeah. and uh, stuff. But uh, I, I fly helicopters and I'm a big you know, aviation guy. But more importantly, for macroeconomically, the, first of all, for the U.S. at least, the U.S. dominates this, right? There's mm -hmm. nobody even trying. You know? And even now, Elon Musk can launch rockets cheaper than the Chinese can. Right. And the Chinese admit that. Like, we can't keep up with this. You know, this is, first of all, just great. It also lowers the cost of getting to space, which then will create all kinds of new things we haven't even thought about yet, microsatellites and, and communications and, you know, wheat harvesting, survey systems, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but it also, very importantly, produces very interesting jobs because those are physical devices. We need to have factories. Mm -hmm. We need to have guys who can bend metal. Yeah. We need to have, you know, hourly workers who can operate machinery. We need to have guys who can fuel. You know, it's a very dynamic cross-industry. It's not just Silicon Valley where it's a bunch of, 
you know, sort of very highly paid engineers in Silicon Valley, people like Rockets have to do a lot of stuff, right? And right. it helps New Mexico and also those things we ought to be encouraging. Yeah. Uh, also, the whole DARPA stuff, where you know you're fostering like self-driving cars, all this kind of stuff. Where you, where you you kick it off with a million dollars a thing, X prizes, another one. Yeah. Um, million dollars, it's unbelievably well spent. Right. right. Million dollars. You, you, you get so many different people trying to achieve that goal exactly. and get that prize that exactly. the innovation just gets exponentially exactly. increased. Remember, in Charles speed. Lindbergh's flight across the Atlantic was, was a prize like that. Was it? It was. Didn't and know. so um, we should be doing that every day on everything. And people right. are starting to do more of that. And, and, and again, this is almost completely an American thing. Yeah. Uh, and it just creates a huge number of jobs, innovation and stuff in the U.S. And of course, that spills over lots of places, but sort of keeping the middle class. And they all need accountants and they all need sure. all these jobs, right? They're not all in the middle, middle of nowhere, but but these types of macroeconomic things, yeah. uh, skilled immigration, you know, obviously we're in a big competition for talent. The U.S. does pretty well. Uh, Ten years ago, it was after 9-11, so it was hard to get a lot of immigrants in. Now mm-hmm. that's become easier. But, you know, stuff gets stalled in Congress and all these kind of issues right. um, are all very important. Plus, yeah, obviously taxes and innovation and capital gains and all this stuff has impact in, in the macro sense of yeah. how much stuff, how things get funded. And there's so much money floating around now. Um, but, there's a, you know, there's a valley of death sort of concept, which is things get easy to get early stage money and hard to get through sort of this valley of innovation. Not so much anymore on tech stuff, uh, like apps, but right. it's still important in drugs, still important in things that cost money, mm-hmm. rockets and stuff also. Yeah. You know, those things don't make themselves for free, right? Sure. I, can, I can build and launch an app in the world for half a million dollars. I can't launch an airplane right. for that. And so how you fund those type things, I mean, there's, there's thinking about that, but right. we could do more on that kind of stuff. Now, now you mentioned drugs, and I, I know you're you're – don't have unlimited time with me, though. I'd, I'd love to keep you here. So I'll run through a few uh, few things uh, relatively quickly, and then we'll, we'll clue it up. But you, I think I read somewhere that you're, and again, speaking about drugs and perhaps the future of drugs, you mentioned you uh, have an interest in nanotechnology and stem cell research and that sort of thing. I, th- I think that was... Right, yeah. I used, to, I used to help run a, a nanotech uh, sort of uh, I mean, uh, group in Silicon Valley. You know, health and wellness is, is really a, a huge interest in, in, for me, and it's my profession. And I'm always looking at the way new technologies, whether they be wearables or healthcare services or, or whatever they may be, might impact the way we measure our health, interpret our health, keep track of our health, and then improve our health in some way. The whole quantified self biohacking movement is really taking, uh, really gathering steam. You know, do you have any uh, do you have any thoughts on nanotech and and you know kind of uh, the way technology is getting involved in medicine uh, that could take shape over the next few years? Uh, I think nanotech's a little different in that that's already sort of permeating a lot of things. And that's because nano is very high-tech, very scientist, very sure. white-coat kind of, kind of thing. And, and very interesting. has some ups and downs to it. Mm-hmm. But I think the rest of it, absolutely. I've uh, always been a big fan of, of sort of the more tech, sort of the pills you can swallow, all this kind of stuff. I'd like to see more uh, in-home uh, medical care stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, China talked about it for a little while in Shanghai. They haven't done it yet. I'd love to see a home medical analysis system where you can plug in little modules for diabetes right. or for heart monitoring and we transmit that over the Internet to wherever, right? And the problem is if you build this in the U.S. under FDA, it would cost $10,000. Sure. But if we can build it somewhere for, you know, $50, right. it may right. not be that accurate, but today we got nothing, right? Yeah. And, and wearables are part of that. They're yeah, kind of yeah. already walking down that path. Well, there, there, I mean, there's even – I was looking the other day. There's even things that do, you know, take a sampling of your blood, right. and it's an attachment for your iPhone, and all the different information you get from that. And then, of course, when you upload that data to, you know, cloud computing servers right. and stuff like that and aggregate it, then en masse you're able to see healthcare pictures for – 
you know, populations, but also you're able to diagnose, you know, look at what works in terms of treatments and diagnosing. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, that's big data, right? Yeah. And I, so I think that absolutely is going to be in the next 10 years, you know, very helpful at, at, a, at a street level. In other words, it helps your doctor do a better job with you and particularly with the elderly yeah. and a lot of other people that, you know, um, have challenging interaction with the healthcare system. Yeah. Uh, don't all have iPhones, but I think that's going to be a big sort of everyday consumer type of technology. Right. And then, you know, the wearables, the Fitbits, all that kind of stuff. Uh, they're modestly interesting, but yeah. where they evolve is going to be interesting. Sure. And then the pills you swallow and uh, and then the genetics. You know, we know if you sequence cancer, you get different. If you have breast cancer, well, there's nine different types. Right. Right. Which one do you have? And that d- controls how we treat that. That's a huge step forward. Yeah. Uh, your genome and the cancer genome together, how that the viruses, all that stuff. Yeah. Still fairly new. We can sequence you now in a day or two. Yeah. I right? couldn't do that before. Um, the future prediction of stuff, and then all this. Then, because you get into dangerous areas about changing my sure, genome, sure. Choose, choosing your baby based on ethical genomes. stuff, yeah, yeah, real, and and that stuff's all coming. Yeah, those are our. We'll work our way through it. Right? Well, but, it's. I mean, again, with, with so many things we've been discussing today, the convergence of so many things in the healthcare industry. You know, the wearables and our understanding of the human genome and various biological processes and epigenetics, and you know. And companies, like you said, the, the Fitbits and that sort of thing are really just a novelty at this point. They're not really that valuable in terms of di- diagnostics or anything, but you can see that that's where it's going. Um, you know, companies like 23andMe and Ubiome who can give you an idea of what your what your genes say and what you're susceptible to and things like that. I mean, it's, to me, incredibly fascinating, but certainly over the next 5, 10 years to be able to really – because up till this point, we have, you know, diet and exercise, and that's how you should be healthy. But to be able to get a real-time picture of actually what your health is and then have the information to uh, make changes as and where they are needed, I mean, exactly, and do, it, and do it affordably. Yeah, it's yeah. So for life expectancy, life quality, I mean, seemingly all these things are going to be dra- dramatically disrupted. And the healthcare industry, certainly, I think a lot of people have issues with as it is right now, and it's rife for people wanting to disrupt it and create you know, more cost-effective, more convenient solutions. So hopefully that's, uh, that's all in the near future. Um, what's, so you mentioned that uh, flying helicopters was your hobbies. I'm, al- I'm always interested in, in the people we have on the show, like yourself, who have taken a different route in life and have done interesting things. What stands behind just what, you're pro- what you do professionally? So you mentioned you fly helicopters. I mean, that's a relatively unusual thing. What's all that about? Oh, it's, it's fun, actually. Well, I grew up uh, flying. My father was a pilot right. uh, for many years. Not not, com- not commercially, but he uh, he was in the military a long time ago. And one of the uh-huh. greatest things in the 70s was that if you were in the military at all in, like, the 50s when he was, they would pay for uh, all your all flight training you want, which, again, is a great thing. We should be doing more of this. has stopped. You know, we should be having more pilots because that makes more innovation, makes more new things, right? right. So he paid in the 70s, I think, to study uh, flying, he paid something like $10 an hour. Uh, to go and learn, he has all these degrees and all these all these things, and um, he never really used it a lot. But a lot of other people did, and became new things and all that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. But anyway, so I was always around planes and and so on my whole life. And so uh, it was a natural extension yeah, yeah. for you. To and get I'm a big aerospace and flight guy. And then I always thought helicopters were more cool, right. and, and they are. They're actually a lot. Flying helicopters are so completely different right. than a small airplane. You can see so much more. You're flying slower. You're in a glass ball. You know, if you're in a in a regular plane, the window is only about maybe a foot high or two feet high. You can sort of see way out ahead, but you can't see below you right. unless you kind of look out the side. Um, helicopter, you're like suspended in a glass ball, like flying around over the trees and the ocean. I fly in California over the ocean, the whales and so on. It's, 
It's uh, quite cool. So how often do you fly? Uh, these days, I don't. Hardly. Yeah. yeah. Cool. And here, it's really nearly impossible. <laughs> sure. So sure. I spend more time back in California, sort of pick it up again. But, but it's actually a lot of fun. And it's cool. beautiful. I'm always interested in knowing, you know, people like yourself that uh, I'm not trying to be overly flattering here, but, but are high performers generally, you know, that, that get stuff done, that are innovators, that are, are leaders. What their, if any, their routines look like, you know, do you, do you have any sort of morning routines, any rituals, any things that you make sure you, that you most of the time stick to that give you the, the mental clarity, capacity, energy to do what you do? I'm not sure I have any. Uh, I, I guess I, mean, I work all the time. So that's, I, <laughs> uh, I do email. In, I'm, I'm the, the email king, I suppose. Also, I, I send and receive about 100, 150,000 emails a year. Holy and I actually shit. track it each year. At the end of the year, I figure out how many emails I sent and received last so year. So you're not one of these people that uh, is like the anti-email revolution where people batch their emails and only look at it once or twice uh, well, a no, day. So I, I do do more of that. So recently, because I do so much email, I've been working on how to get more efficient. So right. the first thing I did is I moved to a Mac Air last year. And uh, I have about a million emails in my, in my email system. And so performance is a, is a thing for me. Because unless my email client is super fast, I'm sick of waiting for for things right. so I can't use Gmail or online they're just way too slow and uh, so it's really important to be quick but uh, I've definitely done the thing about not going to the office so I don't go to the office as much as I used to right and too many distractions too many distractions and you just you know you go to the bathroom you go to the water cooler and 15 minutes evaporates out of your life right. 30 minutes evaporates out of your life and yeah. so actually we have a cafe in our building uh, in the office and I go there in the, first, in the morning so I go to the office but I don't go into the office. Right. And so I'm close by to do meetings and people need me and so on. But I actually don't step foot. Now, in theory, I should sit in my own office, but I find that too boring. <laughs> and so, uh, so I work with myself a lot. And uh, that lets me focus and concentrate. And I batch, definitely try to batch stuff during the day. Right. But if I don't, for me personally, if I don't get stuff, I don't periodically work on email and catching up on things during the day, I get home and I have 300 things to do. Right, right. And then I have to work till 2 in the morning so, to so, do that. And it's hard for me to find. I'm trying to follow better this... Uh, you know, batch out 90 minutes a couple times a day and right. try to do work and try to focus on stuff, especially on weekends. Like, yeah. I have Chinese class today, and then the whole rest of the day I'm working, and tomorrow too, right. just to catch up on fundraising things and bigger projects. I do them on weekends and at night. Yeah. So during the day, my real job I have to do nights and weekends because sure. I have to do other things during the day with you know, people and issues and meetings. and Well, people like yourself, you know, the weekends is not, is when you have to hustle, you know, when you have to catch up, right. when you yeah, have to work absolutely. on those other things. Absolutely. So there's I, not, I hope someday it's getting better. But I, I, I my father's, I mean, my father is now in his 70s and he could, still gets up five, six in the morning and works till nine o'clock at night, seven days a week. Awesome. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm from New England and so the New England hardy sort of Quaker kind of uh, uh, work ethic. Right. Is there right? Well, that's 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 not to be trifled with. That's a right. big element. But uh, it's funny, you know. A lot of people in the younger generation and the way that the work lives have developed, weekends become write-offs. Whether it's because you have a big drinking night on Friday and Saturday, or you know, it's DVD and pizza and relatively little activity. And it was it wasn't dissimilar for myself for a long time. But then I, I, I shifted, and you know, now on Friday or Saturday and Sunday mornings, I I too am up at six or seven, and it's like a whole new world of what you can get done. You right. know, the things you can work on. I mean, it's not. I mean, you, there are two two extra work days to your week that you can. And now they don't have to be and work. They're quiet. It could be yeah, they're quiet. They're right, yeah. They can be side projects. You can relax a bit while you're doing it, but it, they're still moving things forward. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, every weekend I I don't have time to work out enough. That's a big problem. Yeah. I actually don't like working out, but if I need to, especially in Shanghai. Yeah. And so uh, weekend mornings I do that first thing I get up, go to the gym. Right. And that's where I read. So I have a Kindle, and uh, so I read about twenty or thirty books a year. 
Um, so I try, I track all my books and all my movies and stuff. So I do a little review so I can remember what, what I actually read. Right. And uh, Kindle's just been a godsend, right? Because you can get books. You I, can't, you I was get. crazy for Kindle, but then I became an audible freak because it's even easier. You know, even, you're, yeah. you're biking around, you're in a taxi, and just pop it in. And yeah, I haven't done that much. I, I'm an audiobook fan, but I don't do that much. Yeah. I need to do more. But um, but like when I'm on the gym, I read all the time. I go to a cafe after, right. and so I uh, and I read a whole mix of, of stuff from business to random sure. spy novels. And things and China stuff and, and all that. So that's right, my reading time, right. kind of. And, uh, and then I have Chinese class and then uh, yeah, and then work. And so, cool. it's uh, so I've got I've got two more questions for you. And, and this uh, second last one I've never done before, so bear with me. Um, but I want to do, if you're comfortable with it, a word association, right? Okay. So I'm going to say it's actually a person association. So I'm going to say a person, and I want you to give me like a one or two word. What pops into your head first? All right. Okay. All right. So, first one, Steve Jobs. Apple Innovation. Jeff Bezos. Customer Service. Nice. JFK. Leadership. WeChat. Convenience. Chairman Mao. China. Genghis Khan. Leadership. Jack Ma. Don't say leadership. <laughs> um, scale and future exciting awesome um, last question everyone that sits in that chair I ask them uh, if they can give three pieces of advice um, that they could give to either their younger selves or people you know younger people today that want to get involved or are just getting involved in the tech the startup that sort of scene and specifically here in, in Shanghai and China, what are three pieces of advice that you could give them that would help them maybe avoid some mistakes or just help them along on their way? Well, one would certainly be, you know, get involved and right. get involved now. Get involved in the scene, the community. Yeah, get involved in the scene, meet people uh, because you're going to need all those people. Right. Uh, and if you're doing it already, doing it as in startups or something already, then, you know, get friends, get other people. Don't work by yourself. Right. You know, key thing of Silicon Valley is it's all a big community. And everybody helps everybody else. It's, right. it's ridiculously uh, helpful mm-hmm. to other people. If one thing signifies Silicon Valley, it's everybody will help everybody else for free anytime for anything. Really? I mean, it really is that sort of – because you never know when it comes back, right? right Car- yeah. Karma kind of thing. Um, and uh, even the, the biggest, most famous people will help, you know. You, know, you can even see I mail, mail to Steve Jobs. He wouldn't necessarily help you, but he would at least answer. And um, – so that's one. One is also, so one's getting involved, but one is just do it, right? Get out. Don't stick, sit in a big company and do nothing and sort right. of be content in what you're doing. If you have an idea, try it. Now, you can do it on weekends. You can do it part-time. Mm-hmm. You can go study. It's not nearly, especially if you're young, it's not nearly as risky as you think. What's the worst that can happen? You know, right. and uh, if you get out there, take a risk, do something, fail, do it again. You know, uh, failure is not that much of a problem. Right. Um, so that's, that's really important. And, you know, surround yourself by, by similar people, especially optimistic people, people that are doing things, you know, that you want to do mm-hmm. or can help you, but also people that are, you know, positive. It's very important to have positive people in your life. Be selective who you surround yourself yes, with. Yeah, it's very important. And because uh, uh, sort of this whole, if I just saw a thing yesterday that I've seen before of, of you know, the, the number one predictor of success is uh, of happiness uh, long term is the network in which you surround yourself. Right. And you're the average of your five best friends and something that like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And if they're all miserable, if they're all fat, slothy, and miserable, guess where you're going to end up, yeah. right? But if they're all high-achieving, inter-exciting people, and now, of course, you have to make yourself worthy of sort of being with them, right? Yeah. If you're boring and un- uneducated and don't track anything, 
well, they don't want to hang out with you. Sure. Right? So how do you always continuously better yourself, learn new things, get more exciting? Mm-hmm. Um, and that could be anything. It could be in flower arranging. It could be in sure. tech stuff. Sure. could be in painting. It could be a lot of stuff. Um, you know, it's what you can be okay to be solitary, but but it really is a community effort and, and a lot of stuff, and just get involved. Right. You now, get out and whatever it is, like the, the Nike thing, just do it. Just, right? do, just it. do something, especially yeah. in China, especially where it's easy, especially where it's cheap, especially where you're young, especially where there's energy and ambition and yeah. nowness to everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And China already has that culture of all this stuff, so yeah. just ex- push that forward and, and do even more. Right. Uh, and then you know, and see the world and 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 but push for excellence also. Now I'm going to rob the uh, the final question from uh, another tech podcast I listened to, Silicon Reel out of London. But if, if you could have a direct line to your 20-year-old self, would you, would you say anything? Would you give any advice? Or would you just say, hang up the phone and say he'll figure it out? Uh, I would have moved to Silicon Valley. Personally, I would have moved to Silicon Valley earlier. Right. I got there too late. Uh, Want a uh, bit of that tech boom money? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and uh, Well, I should have gone. I had the opportunity to go to Stanford for my MBA in the 80s, and I should have gone. Right. Uh, more because it should have got, it would have got me out there and would have mm. got me there. So it would be 30 years ago now. But uh, 25, but uh, I should have gone to California. Like, I always should have gone to California early. And that's still true here and anywhere else, right? Go to right. California. Right. Just go, right? It's like going to China. Mm-hmm. If you're a foreigner, come to China. Yeah. If you're in China or anywhere else or not thinking about can't come to China for whatever reason, go to California. Yeah. Um, California, not such a hard sell. <laughs> Beautiful weather. Yeah. You know, well, great Shanghai, but Shanghai also, I think, I think, and there's different things here. I mean, there's other exciting places to be in the world. Go to Vietnam. Sure. Go to Burma. Yeah. Go to these places that are that are much more cutting edge than China is at the moment. Yeah. But are more challenging at many levels. So mm-hmm. it depends what you're what you're interested in. Uh, if you're not in China, have anything to think about? It, just come. Just just seriously, just come. It's not that hard to get here. Get a visa. Yeah, be just whatever. Buy a ticket. Buy a ticket. Get just, a tourist visa. You'll sort it out when you get here. Sort it out when you get here. And, that's what and, I did. and bring some skills. Exactly. Yeah. And most of the stuff that's built here that was built by foreigners is exactly that. Yeah. Or not a lot. But likewise, if that doesn't make sense for you, go to California. If you're right. in Europe somewhere or you're in the U.S. or whatever, uh, just go. It's still, right? the, it's it's still the center. Still. So much so, going Just on. like going to Hollywood in the 20s and right. 30s and 40s, going to New York for Broadway. Right. You have to go. You know, um, eventually bring some skills. Right. Have a clue. You know what you're doing. Add prepare, value. Prepare yourself. Yeah, prepare yeah. yourself. That may be two years from now, right? What's going to be valuable when I get there? Right. How can I learn PHP or design or build some apps and have a portfolio? Right? Mm-hmm. Think as like an artist. You have to have a portfolio or some value or whatever you're doing, or 3D market, or printed, whatever, mm-hmm. um, and show up and network your butt off, and yeah. there's opportunity there and here, exactly yeah. the same. That's great advice. Uh, Steve, thank you very much for being on the show today. Uh, I know you're super busy. Um, I know also you don't get enough emails, uh, so if anyone wants to get in touch with you or learn more about China NetCloud, where can they do so? Uh, well, you can certainly go on our website, yeah. you know, chinanetcloud.com. Uh, I also have a private website. Uh, I have uh, stevemushro.com and okay. mushro.com. I'm oh, sorry, mushro. Okay. I both. Uh, okay. Uh, stevemushro and mushro.com. <laughs> They're kind of outdated. I uh, have helicopter pictures. Uh-huh. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm easy to find. Cool. And uh, we are Tech in Shanghai. You can find us uh, at Tech in Shanghai on Twitter. Or our website is now live, and we've got all of our episodes up there. So techinshanghai.com. And, of course, we're on iTunes, Tech in Shanghai. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Tech in Shanghai podcast. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Tech in Shanghai for everything tech from Shanghai and China. See you next time.